Catherine Rundle has written a book about the Christian poet John Donne called Super Infinite. Catherine tells Michael Barclay what is special about John Donne. She also describes the motivation for writing her children's books. Catherine Rundle started writing for children at the age of only 21. In little more than a decade, she's become one of our leading children's writers, with six books so far, including the award-winning Rooftoppers, the story of a girl who travels across the rooftops of Paris looking for her mother. Catherine herself is a roof climber and a tightrope walker, of which more later. Born in 1987, she grew up in Zimbabwe and Brussels. After taking her undergraduate degree at Oxford, she was elected a Fellow of All Souls College, where she wrote her PhD thesis on John Donne. Her book on that great metaphysical poet was published earlier this year to celebrate the 450th anniversary of his birth. You're a huge fan of Dunn, Catherine, obviously, as the title of your book reveals, Super Infinite. Why should we be reading, remembering him now? I think John Dunn was unlike anybody else in his ability to lay out the strangeness and alchemical nature of humanity, that we are so breathtaking and so deeply annoying, that we are so dark and so full of joy and hope, that we are such a bewildering mix, and he laid out that mix astonishingly. <laughs> the fascinating thing about your book, I think, is that you tackle his work with the same kind of uh, hunger and excitement as exists in his writing. Is that fair? I hope so. I think John Donne, being one of those strange and alchemical creatures, needs writing about him, that salute, that sort of hunger that he had for the world. He was somebody who faced deep, deep sorrow in his lifetime and yet insisted unremittingly on awe. And for that, I think we can turn to him for ways that we might untangle our lives now, today. One of the qualities you were talking about there in Dunn, Catherine, seems very much a theme in your own work, and that's the fight to discover joy, despite the grief and loss involved in living. Absolutely. So I think John Dunn, he was one who, he faced absolute horror. He lost six babies, he lost his wife to childbirth when she was only 32, he lost his brother when he was 19 to plague... And yet he still insisted relentlessly that it is an astonishment to be alive and it behoves you, therefore, to be astonished. And I think for my own life, when I was young, I had always reckoned that it is very difficult and it is also staggeringly beautiful to be alive. And I think that is something that I want to infuse through all my children's books, this sense that, yes, you're right to be afraid, be brave anyway. So they can be told the truth about the darker side of life? I think they absolutely can. My children's books are, broadly speaking, sort of wildly unlikely adventure stories. But I think that they have a kernel in them, a sense that, yes, it is hard to stride through this world. It is hard to face the sorrows that will undoubtedly come. And yet, the only thing larger than the world's chaos are its miracles. And I think if you think of something like um, Paddington Bear, the way that Michael Bond sort of baked into his stories this offering to children that, yes, 
yes, it will be hard, but for every one of Paddington's chaoses, there is always something that sort of turns out exquisite. If you think of it, Paddington might see a burglar and he sort of stops the burglar and you suddenly realise that he's stopping the burglar with the sandwich that he dropped earlier on the floor, that every mistake he makes eventually has something beautiful in it. <laughs> and, you know, I think that children's books can point out large truths. In your book, The Good Thieves, you write about a girl whose grandmother has just died and her grandfather is really submerged by grief. And it seemed to me, reading it, that you're setting out to teach children about bereavement and how they might help the old people in their family. Yes, I think I wanted to write a book that would be about seeing someone else's sorrow and loving so recklessly, so utterly that you try to take that sorrow into your own world and transform it. I think if you were an 11-year-old, you would think that The Good Thieves was about a little girl who performs a heist in New York City to steal back the things that have been taken from her grandfather. But I think if you were an adult, you would see that it's also about this sense that faced with loss, it is possible to find something large within it that has joy in it. All of what you've said uh, could suggest that your books are gritty, but in fact they're quite romantic, aren't they? Even quasi-magical. I hope so. I would reckon that they sort of sit in the space between possible and impossible. They are things about, you know, children riding wolves across Russia and living up on the rooftops of Paris and going on these wild adventures. Wound into that, there are these truths about the world, I think. But I also want children to have a, a plot that will grab them by the wrist and drag them onwards. This music we're going to hear next relates to your own childhood in Zimbabwe because your father was an aid worker, your mum was a teacher. And this Strauss, I think, brings back memories of quite wild dances. <laughs> exactly that. Um, my parents fostered children. I had two foster siblings for my whole childhood. And one of my strongest memories is of my mother, who is uh, much taller than me and very beautiful. She used to take us one by one by the hands and sweep us up in the kitchen in Zimbabwe. If you picture a large white kitchen filled with geckos and lizards um, <laughs> that would wander in. And she used to swing us round in her arms and she used to sing the pom-poms of the waltz. And I do think, looking back, that it is one of the greatest strokes of luck you can have to be loved as a child by somebody who knows about love. And my parents did know a great deal about love.
Boris Janssens conducting the Vienna Philharmonic in music from the Blue Danube Waltz by Johann Strauss. All that whirling around to Strauss clearly gave you an appetite for heights, Catherine, and terrifying physical feats. I mentioned at the beginning that you're into tightrope walking, roof climbing. How did that start and, uh, well, which roofs have you climbed? Um, The roof climbing started with just a love of heights, with being quite a shy child and loving the idea of being able to get up high and see the world stretched out below you and being able to watch without being watched. Of course, sometimes I suppose this is on the edge of uh, legality. Um, But are you terrified when you're doing that? Or in fact, is that part of the fun, the adrenaline rush? (laughs) Um, I am a little bit terrified. I tend not to do things which, if I fell, I would die. So it's less to do with being afraid than with being able to temporarily unmoor your sense of terror from your sense of adventure. And the compensations are so colossal. What you see up above a city late at night is what you get to see almost no other time. It's entirely your own. It's laid out. It shines. It looks different and older and stranger and that is what I go in pursuit of. And then when I got to Oxford I discovered the tradition of the Oxbridge night climbers and I started climbing a bit more seriously and when I was elected to All Souls College I was told that there is a trapdoor above the lavatory above the library which will lead you through a tower up onto the rooftop and from there you can get the whole way round the rooftop of All Souls College. And it was while I was up there one night at about two o'clock in the morning that I found a empty glass bottle of beer that someone had left up there and started thinking, well, what if somebody lived up on these rooftops? What if there is a whole landscape that we miss because we failed to look up? And that is how the book Rooftoppers was born. That book, Rooftoppers, is about a group of children who climb the rooftops of Paris. And I think that does actually relate to the next music. It does. Foray's Requiem is a piece of music that the main character's mother plays, but she plays it double time. And it's a chase across the rooftops trying to hear this music. And I think the idea behind the double time was the idea that the Requiem is sorrow, but that even in sorrow, one can seek out delight. Was your mother uh, musical? Very. My mother loves opera. My brother was a classical musician for quite a long time before he became a vicar. And music was always in the house. Um, and indeed, often some foray was in the house.
In Paradisum from the Requiem in D minor by Gabriel Fauré. Ivor Bolton conducting the Baal Symphony Orchestra and the Balthazar Neumann Choir. Such joyful peace in that Fauré Requiem. It's about finding peace even through loss, isn't it? It is. And it means a lot to me in part because I lost my own sister uh, when I was 10. She was 16, and it was the great lasting tragedy of my life. And my sister was, in fact, not my biological sister. She was my foster sister. And my parents fostered throughout my childhood. And the thing I now admire them for so wildly, though I didn't realise it at the time, was the will of iron it must have taken to allow us such freedom, that we were allowed to play unsupervised, that we were allowed to run off and climb trees and disappear for whole afternoons. And now I don't have children myself, but I have a nephew and niece, and my instinct is to, you know, a little bit of me wants to give them cotton wool shoes and keep them away from sharp objects for the next 18 years. (laughs) And their willingness to let us be a little bit wild and run a little bit free... I am so grateful for that. I think that is one of the greatest gifts you can give a child.
Elaine Brown is an author and member of Pivocchi Baptist Church. Elaine has produced a series of talks for us, and today her title is Where to Leave Your Worries, based on Genesis chapter 39. Leave all your worries with him, because he cares for you. And also the first letter of Peter, chapter 5 and verse 7, Cast all your cares on God. For you are his charge. My husband died three years ago, and since then my son Stuart has helpfully handled many of my affairs. Before each of his visits, I make a note of my concerns, and then, as we talk, I tell him of each one. Leave that with me, he'll say. So I do just that. Eventually, crossing every item off my list. By the time Stuart's visit is over, I'm at peace. And later on, it doesn't occur to me to check up and see if he's handling my requests. That's because I know and trust him, and he has not let me down. High-ranking Potiphar had a similar trust in Joseph, his personal servant. So strong was his confidence that he didn't concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Potiphar's trust is a tribute to diligent Joseph, who never let him down. As I come to God bringing my requests, may I give him the tribute of my trust. May I not check up later to see if he's working on my behalf, but rather rest in the certainty of a wise outcome. And a brief prayer. Lord, may I leave my worries with you and then rest in the knowledge that you do all things well. God will take care of you Dismayed, whatever betide. 
take care of you. Take care of you through every day. has produced a series of talks for us based on John's Gospel. Today he examines the impressions we get of what Jesus is like. When I listened to my last talk, it did sound pretty full of theology for this time on a Sunday morning. Maybe today's has a more accessible tone. John continues in that same verse 14 of chapter 1 with his lasting impression of Jesus. He calls it Jesus' glory. When he recalls those days, one image springs to mind. What image springs to your mind when you think about him? And where did it come from? Have you got the real Jesus or another perception? John says, We saw his glory, and it was the glory of an only son with a father. Is that your picture, or something different? Closeness, love, shared identity, relationship, joy, confidence. A picture that was in my mind when I woke a few nights ago was from my primary school in Cooper, where we were introduced to country dancing. The first dance we learned was Strip the Willow. If you don't know it, Two rows of partners face each other in two long lines. The lead couple then link hands and dance between the lines to the end and back while everyone else looks on and claps. It came to me in that split second that the lead couple were the father and the son. When Jesus came, mankind looked on while he walked with the father in front of them.
danced, you could say. I only do the things which I've seen with my father, says Jesus. I only say what he is saying, he says. They were always hand in hand, dancing together, and now on earth, as it is in heaven. And we saw this glory, says John, like an only son with the father. In the next dance phase, the top couples split and danced behind the backs of the two long lines to the other end. For this short part, they're on their own, though they have a goal to join up again at the end. Could that illustrate those dark hours of separation on the cross? Equal agony for the father as for the son. Which of you true fathers wouldn't choose to go through pain instead of your child? Jesus says they did it for the joy set before him. And that joy in the dance is to meet at the far end and form an arch of clasped hands through which all the other dancing partners bend and pass in their turn. A doorway into the same shared relationship of father and child. This doorway wasn't forged in fantasy, but in fire, justice was the ground for our peace. We fall far short of understanding the deep things of God, but the humble obedience to his will exemplified in God the Son is what made a door for you and me to bend and pass through, hand in hand, into a totally new world of consciousness of God the Father. I'm going to my Father and your Father, says Jesus at the end of John. Make sure you enter by that door. You can read about it in John chapter 10. Have a good day. I am the Lord your God. I go before you now. I stand beside you. And I'm all around you. Though you feel I'm far away, I'm closer than your breath. And I am
Ian Rose is in charge of Soundwaves Radio in Sussex. Ian has produced a series of short thoughts, one of which he shares with us now. Do you find yourself saying, as I do, oh, I wish I was retired, or I wish I was on holiday, or I wish it was Saturday? And then those words from Psalm 118 came back to me. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let's rejoice and be glad in it. So, when I'm tempted to say, I wish, I'm going to remind myself to be thankful for the present and try to make something of the now. And with God's help, the now can really be something I can be glad of.